0: Welcome to the Saxophone History Podcast, a thoughtful, researched, and slightly irreverent look at the history of our instrument. I'm your host, Andrew D. Meyer. Forget the tape recorder has any other uses than to play Brubeck. That was a line from Paul Desmond's master plan that he wrote down on how he was going to worm his way into Dave Brubeck's group. And that's what we're going to get into today. We left off with Paul Desmond leaving Jack Fina's band in St. Louis after reconnecting with Dave Brubeck via what was probably a very awkward transcontinental telephone call. No description of what was said on the call exists, and the Brubecks have cast doubt that it ever happened. If it did, I would love to hear a recording of it. One thing is for sure Desmond was coming back to California and hanging all of his hopes on reigniting the flame that he had started to kindle months before with Dave Brubeck. Before we get totally back into the story, I'd just like to say sorry for the delay in getting this episode out. Um, it's been a little bit little bit longer than I would have liked to have had in between episodes, but I hope you'll find this episode to be worth the wait. I'd also like to remind everyone that the primary source for these episodes is Doug Ramsey's book, Take Five, The Public and Private Lives of Paul Desmond. I'd, I'd really recommend checking his book out. There's so much good stuff beyond what I'm going into through, through this podcast in there. Uh, and one last thing, uh, this is just a total coincidence, but I realized that the first episode of this series on Paul Desmond, uh, I put it out on what would have been Paul's 99th birthday. Uh, it was just a weird coincidence. I didn't realize it until a few days after I'd put it out. But uh, the day that I recorded it, I I just sort of like woke up that morning and I had this weird sense of determination to get the episode out that day. And uh, so I don't know, maybe that was why. Anyway, back to the story. The Brubeck Octet was pretty much dead at this point, having failed to really book any gigs. There are only so many Chinese restaurants that you can trick into booking your group before they figure your game out. Remember, they were doing that weird thing where they would like uh, book themselves at Uh, Chinese restaurants like under one leader's name and then when they didn't like music, they would just book the same group like with a different name the next week. Yeah. So eventually people figured that out, right? Uh, You can only do that for so long. Also Dave Van Crete lost the book of arrangements at the end of the 1940s in a flood in Australia somehow. (laughs) With the arrangements gone and the difficulties of booking anything, let alone gigs big enough to split eight ways, Brubeck was left to focus on his trio. Operation Paradise is the official name that Paul Desmond gave to his mission to get back into Brubeck's good graces. He literally sat at his portable typewriter and wrote out an outline for how he was going to attack his mission of restarting his career with Dave Brubeck. On a personal note, I really like this move because this is exactly the type of psycho shit that I do on a regular basis. Desmond's plan went like this. These are uh, quotes that he wrote down in his uh, Operation Paradise manifesto. Quote, practice and learn all available Brubeck arrangements, work out details of a financial agreement in parentheses with union safeguard, deal with prospective personality problems in the band, uh, which I assume meant, you know, the fact that Dave like hates his guts at this point and work on something to record with Dick practice. Oh, and try out new reads, unquote. Some of this initial outline is just super practical stuff that anyone attempting to insinuate themselves into another musician's scene would do, like learning Brubeck's arrangements. That's the natural move, right? Obviously, he would want to show up not just knowing Brubeck's tunes, but being able to add something to them so that Brubeck and the guys in his band would think, yeah, this, this actually does sound better when Desmond's here. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we should invite him into the group full time. I like that he's so businessy about working out a financial arrangement. And I'd be curious to know what he meant, what he meant by that exactly. Like whether he was thinking in terms of a, a weekly salary or recording fees or what. Interestingly, uh, we'll get into this later. He he never really had a formal contract with Brubeck. So it's it's kind of interesting that he, a front, like that was so important to him. And then he just kind of never followed through with it. And naturally, the last step of this plan was to bring something new for the group to work toward recording. You know, this is a smart move because it's it's something that he can offer the group and it it sort of cements his place within the group because he wrote it. You know, it belongs to him, but it's for the group. So really, these three steps would be a pretty good starting place for any young musician trying to break into a scene or, or for someone moving to a new town or something like that. I also quite like the line deal with prospective personality problems in the band which, you know, like I said, I assume means figure out a way around the fact that Dave hates my fucking guts for stranding him when I left for that cushy resort gig, right? It's amusing that he's so casual about what he needs to do, but I suppose the first step in problem solving is identifying that there is a problem and then working from there, right? Desmond then continues in his typed up notes for Operation Paradise with a sort of stream of conscious musing. I should say, the group he envisioned had Cal Jader alternating between drums and vibraphones, so there's some weird stuff about Desmond planning to keep time rhythmically while Chater would be playing the vibraphone. But anyway, his plan read, "Quote: Analyze the trio as to commercial atmosphere. State the most convincing possible argument for the extent to which you could increase same greatly. Jazz, obvious. Bongo feeling subtle. Rippling clarinet. Two beat into stomp. Dixie clarinet and incisive alto, crystalline, locked hands piano, alto double lead or obligato. Emphasize value of sustenance and continuity as contrast to now almost exclusive percussive effect of Jersey bounce on air. No matter what outfit in country, on or near top, they all have that sort of contrast. Miles, Shearing, Tristano. Revitalized fugal improvisation. Commercially the most effective thing at the bandbox, still untouched across country. List of proposed arrangements for the four, with four tremendous ones as sample. Spend some time on this. Examine the four most popular things they do. Figure out what makes them so popular, and write some that are more so. Mention eagerness to learn, even unto practicing an hour a day of hi-hat or some such noise make to fill in behind Cal. Remind of ability to write clever patter in case ever needed. Also, offer self as public relations assistant, offering as sample a simple and clear explanation of fugal improvising, along with why it is almost as much fun to listen to as to play. Point out that it will be a long and bleak time before the run across another sax man who can play alto and clarinet at the same time while tap dancing, and who will cheerfully copy out scores, take care of the library, handle the cleaning and pressing of uniforms, and babysit on the side. Final note. From now on, until you either make it or don't, try for once in your life to do something with consistent, unremitting, furious singleness of purpose, determination, and cheerful, optimistic drive. See how it works. Personally, I think you'll make it. Nothing is even remotely near as vital as getting with Dave. Not writing, schoolwork, money, women, leisure. Certainly not mulling over books, magazines, correspondence, records, etc. Forget the tape recorder has any other uses than to play Brubeck." This is quite a remarkable chunk of text that really goes to show how much Desmond had come to realize how much the prospect of working with Brubeck again had meant to him. He was working on this at the start of a seven-hour flight back to California, and I suspect that the rather rambling nature of his writing suggests the influence of alcohol. But we can reduce this uh, stream of conscious plan to an actionable list, and it would read Step one, figure out how commercially successful Brubeck is likely to be as a trio, and then explain why it would be more successful with the addition of saxophone. Step two, bring back the fugal aspects of group improvisation from the bandbox states. Remember, that was a thing that that both Brubeck and Desmond and and a lot of the people listening said was like really the highlight of what they were doing there. Step three. Make a list of possible arrangements and produce four outstanding examples by figuring out what Brubeck does best and then doing it better than he's already doing it. (laughs) Eh, Could be a tall order there. Step four. Make it clear that I'm willing to work really hard to be part of the group, including learning a bit of percussion. Step five. Remind Brubeck that I'm a good writer and can write stage banter and handle public relations for when we're really famous. Step 6. Beg. Tell the guys I'll do like literally anything to be in the group including dry cleaning and childcare. I have to say I love the confidence in what he's proposing when he says things like examine the four most popular things they do, figure out what makes them so popular, and write some that are more so. Like. Figure out what's good about Brubeck and then just do more of that. But, you know, like better. Easy, right? Why didn't anyone else think of that? <laughs> he further breaks down his plan into actionable steps that include organizing Brubeck's tunes in order of popularity and adaptability. And then getting a, getting a good stash of Benny's and staying up all night playing the tunes nonstop until he has them down cold. Desmond was quite smart about how he went about learning these tunes. He explicitly stated that he must add something new that wasn't already present in the original version in order to prove his necessity in taking the group forward in terms of artistic and commercial success. He specifically says that it's essential that that what he adds, quote, must never clutter up or get in the way of the original. It must never play just to be doing something where you find simplicity for god's sakes leave it alone it's getting too rare as it is unquote what he's saying there is like don't just add something to add it you know it has to it has to be meaningful and and if something's simple and it's good that way you know just leave it he was also very careful to ensure that he wasn't taking all the melodies and that the spotlight would be shared between saxophone, vibraphone, and piano. Remember, Cal Jader's still playing in the group, yeah, in the trio. He suggests that he should study which tunes Brubeck and Jader don't seem to care about playing by observing them live so that he could he could share the melodic burden by taking the tunes that, you know, aren't really their favorite. Like, oh yeah, I know you don't like playing the melody on, on whatever, Cal, like... I'll, I'll play that one. Yeah, you, you take a break here, right? <laughs> Clever. Finally, Desmond planned to either record himself playing his added parts over Brubeck's recordings to present to the pianist, or simply go down to the Burma Lounge and play them live for the group to hear. As for his saxophone playing, Desmond had clearly learned a lot about what he liked and didn't like in his playing during his time on the road with FINA. He left a a list of instructions for himself that told him to ensure that he had a, quote, pretty but strong sound, volume with dignity to match Dave, soft tone when used, still firm, definite, and relaxed. Uh, I think soft tone, still firm, definite, and relaxed might be the best description of his sound that I've ever heard. (laughs) He also focused on having flawless technical abilities that enabled him to execute ideas with ease and precise intonation without pinching or choking off his sound. He also talks about not presenting his ideas coldly or with overt displays of affectation. He suggests that just playing good ideas honestly and simply is his goal and that the most important thing is to express the joy of creation. I think it's pretty remarkable that Desmond took the time to write all of this out. And to be clear, I'm really just giving the highlights of what he actually put into writing. And Ramsey's book has the full text of it, and it's pretty lengthy. It, it really shows a, a seriousness and a sincerity that Desmond brought to his cause. So after putting together this master plan, he just showed up on the doorstep of the Brubecks house and basically charmed his way in. Uh, this was obviously no mean feat considering you know the hardship that the Brubecks had been through and, and really blamed on Desmond to a decent degree. According to the Brubecks' account of the day, it was a little touchy at first when Desmond showed up, but his his natural charm and, and no doubt uh, in no small part Dave's natural generosity and warmth allowed the two men to warm to each other rather quickly. Desmond promised the world babysitting, laundry services, even to wash their car, and none of which he did, obviously. Brubeck relented, and the, and the two men were back on good terms, though it wasn't so easy from a business standpoint. Club owners who were employing Brubeck were resistant to change. They felt they had a good thing going with the Brubeck trio, and you know, patrons came to hear the records that they were buying. From that standpoint, this new interloper was was kind of an unwelcome addition, so for the time being, Desmond would have to settle for impermanent status and just sit in where he could. Because he wasn't technically in the group, Desmond wasn't being paid for all of these cameo roles with Brubeck and was forced to take on other work to make ends meet, including some dates with Jack Fina when he was in town with his band. Luckily, Jimmy Lyons was on the case, finding Desmond a fair amount of work, much of which was of a good standard, and, and he was spared from having to do too many dreadful dance gigs. Desmond's day with Brubeck would come, but not just yet. So I guess we should sort of check in with uh, where we are in time and space at this point in the story. It's the spring of 1950 and Paul Desmond has been steadily working away at his detailed plan titled Operation Paradise for some months, and he's now starting to sit in with Brubeck at the Burma Lounge. When he would sit in, Desmond would also take his reel-to-reel recorder with him so he could review the successes and failures of his attempts later. I found interviews online saying that at least one box of these tapes still exist, but there doesn't seem to be a, a digitized version available anywhere. Too bad. Uh, I guess there's a you know dissertation project for an enterprising young jazz studies student out there. Uh, at any rate, the quality of these recordings is said to be very bad, but Desmond's sound is described as being instantly recognizable as his mature sound that he would become famous for. While still working on a way to worm his way back into Brubeck's ensemble, Desmond took some work with Dixieland trombonist Jack Sheedy's band playing alto and clarinet. Also in the band was his friend and and past and future colleague Norman Bates on bass. Unfortunately, on this gig, both Desmond and Bates found themselves attracted to the same girl, uh, one Peggy Nilsson, which created a bit of rivalry between the two musicians. On this occasion, Desmond lost out with Bates, uh, eventually marrying Nilsen and the two musicians who had worked together at the Gary Cellar, the Bandbox, and the Feather River Inn didn't see each other uh, for quite a while. Eventually, they did get back together when they were both members of the Dave Brubeck Quartet, uh, you know, years later. Interestingly, Peggy Bates later said that she remembered going to after-hours clubs and hearing Desmond play and that it was some of the most incredible and energetic playing she had experienced. It's quite likely that that playing was directed toward her, and she just assumed that he always played that way. Um, Several of Desmond's friends and colleagues said that if an object of Desmond's affections came into the club, he would play directly to her. Uh, And it was well known if a woman that Desmond loved was present, his playing would have an extra sparkle to it. After a half year at the Burma Lounge, Jimmy Lyons found the Brubeck Trio work in San Francisco at a club called Ciro's. Although the, this gig didn't last terribly long, it paid enough that Brubeck was able to officially hire Paul Desmond and Dick Collins. Desmond was officially in. The group opened up for Sarah Vaughan on these dates as well. Following this brief stint at Ciro's, Brubeck moved uh, to a tiny club in the Tenderloin, recently renamed the Blackhawk, which was to grow in fame alongside Brubeck. In what I think is a particularly nice turn of phrase, Ramsey describes the Blackhawk as quote, a monument to dimness, dustiness, and the proposition that in a sympathetic setting, the listener can become part of the creative process, unquote. In future years, the Blackhawk would be a favorite stage for Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, Shelley Mann, and the modern jazz quartet, amongst others. From the very beginning, there was something unusual about the Blackhawk. Audiences came to Listen. It was a quiet and friendly place with a real neighborhood vibe about it. It was the kind of place where a young artist who was just starting to have a bit of commercial success could make a name for himself. Brubeck was booked for six months from nine at night to two in the morning for six nights a week. On Sundays, the Brubeck Octet uh, would dust itself off for matinee performances, which attracted a large student audience. The Sunday performances were so popular with students that the Blackhawk created a, a, a section for underage jazz fans that was separated by chicken wire from the main section. I love the idea of this weird jazz cage for teenagers crazy about the Dave Brubeck octet like wrapped up in chicken wire because they're not old enough to drink. This caused quite a stir for uh, some of the more conservative members of the public who felt that the youth of the city was being corrupted by this jazz music. But the mayor, George Christopher, er, intervened and the club was allowed to continue the practice. Interestingly, targeting a youthful audience would be something of a trend in Brubeck's career with the, you know, this Jazz Goes to College series, um, which featured all those live recordings from the the group's really incredibly successful tour of college campuses across the nation, but that uh, is much further into the future. So after this first gig at the Blackhawk ended for Brubeck, uh, a rather bizarre turn of events, uh, found the Brubeck family, uh, in Hawaii. They'd, they'd gone out there for a gig and, uh, they were pretty much broke, and they're they're living above a grocery store just blocks from Waikiki Beach in Honolulu. Dave had put a down payment on a house in Redwood City, California, and after a gig one night, he and his family drove all night from Los Angeles to close on the deal to close the deal in the morning. Dave remembers Yola slapping him several times to keep him awake on the all night four hundred mile journey. When they arrived, uh, they found out that the deal had fallen through, the down payment money was in escrow, and all of their possessions were in storage. Luckily, an offer to play the zebra lounge in Honolulu gave them the option to sort of escape, and, and so the Brubecks were back to eating out of discounted, dented soup cans and scraping by. There wasn't enough money for Brubeck to bring Desmond along on the job, but after less than a week, Desmond received word from Yola that if he was still interested, they would put him up on the island in their cramped quarters. It's kind of a funny offer that she made to Desmond, actually. She says there's room for an army cot in the kitchen that he is welcome to, but it would mean living according to their hours. He would have to get up at nine, then follow the rigors of breakfast, beach, lunch, showers, nap, free time till dinner and then work at 8 until half past 12, except for weekends when they would finish at 1 a.m. The Brubecks, who were really struggling financially with the Honolulu gig, found that living so close to the beach more than made up for the hardships of living in poverty. One day, however, as Dave was teaching his boys how to body surf, he crashed headfirst into a sandbar and severely injured his neck. Because of the unnatural angle of his neck, Dave says he heard the ambulance driver radio ahead to the hospital to say that he was bringing in someone who would be dead on arrival from a surfing accident. To make matters worse, the hospital he was taken to refused him on the grounds of his inability to pay. Eventually, the VA hospital agreed to treat him since he had been in the service. Um, Evidently, you have to have literally been behind Nazi lines to merit medical treatment if you can't afford it in America. Luckily, the initial diagnosis was wrong, and Brubeck did make a recovery, though it took several weeks in traction while his back healed. Four decades later, he still experienced pain in his fingers from the accident. While this accident led to a life-changing injury, it also led to a life-changing career move. Cal Chater and Jack Weeks, who had been grumbling about how little the Zebra Lounge gig was paying, took the opportunity to quit the trio and head back to California, leaving the temporarily incapacitated Brubeck without a band. As he lay waiting for his back to heal, Brubeck planned out what his next move would be and quickly came to the realization that it would involve Paul Desmond not just because of the musical affinity that the two shared, but also because Brubeck was worried that his injuries would mean that he needed another melodic instrument to share the load in case his stamina wasn't at full capacity for some time. All through this time, Desmond was still unsure about his prospects of really making it as a musician. He was still considering his prospects as a writer with a similar kind of approach that he used for Operation Paradise. He made written instructions for himself to think up lists of subjects for articles that he could submit to Esquire, the Saturday Evening Post, the New Yorker and other magazines, and considered film criticism, as well as possibly writing for the radio show The Adventures of Sam Spade. One of the instructions he gave himself was to pump out film reviews in under 45 minutes and simply throw them away when finished. I I suppose that approach to practicing writing is a bit like practicing music. Um... You know, you just you you play a tune and then you, you do it again and then you just play it again and you start over. Despite his somewhat elaborate plans to become a writer, Desmond never really published anything other than liner notes. It's possible that he had a lot of wit, but perhaps not the temperament to follow through to be a writer. Or it's also possible that the success he found in music simply made the writing idea fade away a bit. There are also writings from this time explaining how Desmond was approaching his practicing to become the player he wanted to be. He was quite systematic, which shows that he had a clear vision of uh, how he wanted to play and, and that he worked out a system of how to get there and executed it. He was specific about writing out what tunes he wanted to learn, complete with tempo markings and dates to have them learned by. He talks about learning licks that he likes and playing them in all keys and transcribing common harmonic progressions. He also wrote out some very technical instructions like practicing two octave scales with a swing feel in thirds and diatonic sevenths. He notes that he should be using what he calls unconscious vibrato and always with a clean attack. He also makes some more philosophic notes as to how he should practice. The essential elements are listed as, quote, no drastic change, no desperate experiments, and no musical masochism, unquote. He says, quote, confidence and relaxation must become the norm, even when completely unjustified, they do wonders, unquote. And he finishes up his notes by saying, quote, no marathon, when tired or confused, quit, unquote. I like that he had this, this pretty methodical approach, but also had the sense to keep it you know, from becoming drudgery or mechanical. In his notes to himself on writing, he says that being too rigorous in either writing or music could stop some of the sparkle from coming out in either art form. Almost as a, a postscript to his plan, Desmond addresses us in the future by saying, quote, I suppose that if anyone else ever comes across this It will seem about as asinine and childish as anything can get, and I will appear to be an impossible, ridiculous, maladjusted combination of Spartan and Satyr. And maybe so. I don't know. I just know that I need self-discipline, I haven't got it, and I have planned to commence using it rigorously tomorrow morning for as far back as I can remember. But to penetrate the uninterested sloth of tomorrow morning has so far been impossible. This may all be very silly, but it will work. Because if I ignore this, it will be the denial of every fragmentary daydream I've ever had and an end to any hope whatsoever for the future. And that would be the one thing I couldn't stand. It would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall the day the note arrived from Iola Brubeck saying that, quote, Dave wants to tell you that if you want a job, you're hired as soon as he's able to work, unquote. I sort of imagine it being a normal afternoon. Desmond, you know, he's done his morning session of practicing and maybe he's like eating a sandwich or something as he's bringing in the mail. He's tossing the usual junk mail to the side until a return address from Yola Brubeck stops him in his tracks and he tears the envelope open hurriedly with sandwich hanging from his mouth to read, quote, I think you and Dave know each other well enough that you'll be able to bolster each other's spirits if the jobs are not too great at first. What Dave needs desperately is someone with your enthusiasm and understanding. I personally think that you and Dave with the band, with the bandbox spirit can contribute some tremendous things to music, unquote. By this time, I assume the rest of the sandwich is on the floor and Desmond is like dancing about the house, you know, sliding on the wood floors in his socks and all that. All joking aside, it must have been a major vindication for Desmond that his plan had essentially worked. His hard work and methodical approach had paid off. Operation Paradise had come to fruition. It's quite remarkable that the relationship between Brubeck and Desmond was able to be repaired at all. I think that probably suggests that all of the time that Desmond spent sitting in and hanging around the group was probably very effective, and he must have charmed Brubeck Not just with his playing and his willingness to learn Brubeck's material, but also with his personality. There's nothing to this effect in Desmond's writing from the time. Mostly he just writes about how he feels his playing isn't up to snuff. It would be very funny if he had also been making lists of things Dave liked and disliked and the the kind of jokes he laughed at. Like... Didn't uh, Nikita Khrushchev write down all the things that Stalin would laugh at when they were like, you know, at his weird all night drinking banquets and and then uh, make his wife like repeat back to him what he would said in the morning? I can imagine Desmond, you know, who was also known to be a heavy drinker, doing something like kind of similar, like writing down everything that Dave laughed at and then like checking it out in the morning, you know, as a way to get back into his good graces. At any rate, Desmond was in. He was first tasked with finding a bass player for the new group, which Brubeck envisioned as a drummerless trio. Brubeck suggested Norman Bates but said that he realized it was impossible as Bates and Desmond had had a falling out over Peggy Nielsen. Brubeck also su- uh, suggested Fred Dutton, who not only played upright bass but also doubled on bassoon. He mentions how the bassoon could be useful in the octet were anything to happen with that group, and that they could use the bassoon as a sort of feature gimmick. Brubeck said in a letter to Desmond that they, quote, either have to copy the old trio or get something uniquely different, and I'm for getting as far removed from it, if we can do something well, unquote. Certainly having a trio where at some point the instrumentation would have been alto saxophone, bassoon, and piano would qualify as far removed from the old trio format. Dutton would actually join the group briefly and could be heard on record playing bassoon in counterpoint with Desmond. I found it on a a compilation album called Saga Jazz First Definitions. Uh, Yeah, if you look that one up. Dutton plays the, the usual bass line that would be played on bass and, uh, and Brubeck's left hand uh, on the bassoon. It's a little odd to be sure. Uh, he also plays some long tones on A Foggy Day and Somebody Loves Me, which I think are pretty effective, actually. This bassoon sounds a little bit like a bowed double bass in that context. There's all this correspondence between Brubeck and Desmond from this time when Brubeck was still recuperating in Hawaii from his accident and the two were scheming their venture together. It's quite interesting to see the business considerations they were taking into account, like the prospect of sneaking Fred Dutton around to avoid paying a 10% union travel tax if he transferred locals. Brubeck also got a tentative offer for some work in the Northwest, but told Desmond to keep it quiet as he didn't want it to get back to the Blackhawk in case they needed to keep that as a, you know, a seasonal gig. Brubeck also recognizes that he's essentially booking his established trio, which is a known entity, you know, that people seek out and and then planning to show up with with this new and unknown group. He says that he fully expects club owners to, quote, scream, piss their pants, etc. unquote, when he shows up with a new group. But that the only way to make this all right is for the new group to just be significantly better than what the old trio had to offer. When Brubeck was able to work again, the group started out and quickly gained attention. The new quartet uh, used the Blackhawk as a steady gig and, and built on that with forays to the Northwest and Southern California. And it wasn't long before clubs from all over the nation were requesting bookings of the new group. Yola Brubeck became the full-time manager, and the group started driving as far as Salt Lake City for gigs. While there was increased appetite for the new group to travel, its members held differing, differing opinions on life on the open road. Desmond found the prospect of travel intellectually stimulating and, as a bachelor, particularly alluring. Brubeck, who was a family man with a third child on the way, would have been perfectly content to stay put and simply play around the Bay Area and come home to his family every night. Desmond's ability to compartmentalize his personal life arose again around this time. He was getting a lot of praise in the national jazz magazines and giving sunny interviews where he heaps praise on Brubeck and talks about his plans to better his playing in the future. But at the same time, he was struggling with his mental health and even considering suicide. Late one night, he called trumpeter Dick Collins to meet him at an all-night place where the two sat and drank coffee until it became light, with Desmond talking openly of suicide and saying that things weren't working for him. Though thankfully nothing happened that night, suicide was something that Desmond would talk about with other friends as well. At first, gigs were tough for the new group. There was a lot of driving and the pay wasn't great. Brubeck had a 1949 Kaiser Vagabond with rear seats that folded down to double as accommodation when hotels weren't provided. On longer trips, uh, the four would sometimes send their gear ahead of them via air freight so that two of the guys could lay down on an air mattress in the back while the other two sat up front. Incidentally, after crossing the nation many times, Brubeck's car was parked for the final time in his backyard where his children used it as a playhouse. To give an idea of the kind of miles the band was logging, um, they finished out 1951 in Salt Lake City, Utah, then drove over 2,100 miles east to play Birdland in Manhattan. The group knew that the pressure was on to make a splash at Birdland. According to Yola, none of the members of the band would dare to say New York or Birdland on the drive. They were, they were right to be on edge. Uh, on their opening night at Birdland, Benny Goodman and John Hammond were sitting at the foremost table with their wives. Remember, Benny Goodman was Desmond's idol for, for many years. And according to Brubeck, Desmond rose to the challenge. But Yola recalled that Desmond always seemed rather nervous. Paul's letters home from these early days on the road are quite cheerful and upbeat. It's clear that he enjoyed being on the road and experiencing all the things that come with that lifestyle. He told his father he was living frugally everywhere but in New York, where he spent money idiotically. He also writes home of the shows he had seen and, and books he had read and generally seemed to be having a ball. There was great demand for the group, and they made the most of it on the East Coast by following their debut at Birdland with a week in Baltimore at Gambies a week at the Sky Bar in Cleveland, another week in Boston's Buckminster Hotel, and two weeks at the Blue Note in Philadelphia. This loop ended with another week at Birdland. The group had hit the big time and were moving up the downbeat polls, both as a group and as individuals. While playing at Storyville in Boston, George Wien, who, uh, who ran the club, said that he recognized early on that Brubeck's driving, often pounding piano, combined with Desmond's alto sound, was sure to be a commercial hit. His right-hand man, Charles J. Bourgeois, also recognized that the group were not dressed very well, and so took it upon himself to take Desmond and Brubeck to the Andover shop in Cambridge, where he redesigned their look to resemble the types you might see strolling about Harvard Square. Incidentally, this service was also offered to Miles Davis, the Modern Jazz Quartet, and Roy Haynes. The Storyville gig paid $800 a week for the group, minus accommodation, travel, management fees, and the like, so Desmond would have been taking home less than $200 a week. Unfortunately, while he was earning a decent living, uh, Desmond fell for a scam that, that ended up costing him thousands. A very beautiful woman came on the scene and uh, attached herself to Desmond, claiming to be a very a very wealthy, uh, some sort of like heiress or something herself. She claimed that uh, when his tour was over, she would fly out to San Francisco and meet him at his home. She also claimed that when he got there, there would be a robin's egg blue Cadillac waiting for him as a present from her. Well, the car never showed up, but uh, when they arrived back in California, the girl sure did. Desmond kept passing on excuses like, there's one being made in that color for me, you know, to the other guys in the band who are <laughs> like no doubt rolling their eyes pretty hard. He, he had her put up in the Mark Hopkins, which I believe is now the Intercontinental in San Francisco. And the, the two were like going out for these lavish lunches and, and really living it up. No doubt Desmond believed that she was extraordinary, wealthy, and, and, you know, surely wouldn't be relying on a jazz musician to keep her in such luxury. Brubeck describes how the band received a phone call while they were rehearsing, requesting Mr. Desmond to please come pay the bill as his guest had checked out. So, you know, basically they're going out for all these lunches and, and she's just like racking everything up on her, her room room bill, right? And Desmond's thinking, you know, she's wealthy, she's going to pay this off. But one day while he's out rehearsing, she just checks out and leaves town. It was a total scam. She disappeared, never to be heard from again, and stuck Desmond with the bill, which reached somewhere into the thousands. So Desmond somehow managed to pay off the debts over time, uh, largely due to the steady demand for the Brubeck Quartet. At the end of 1952, the quartet was back in New York, and Herb Geller, uh, remember he was the saxophonist who returned Desmond's stolen horns all those years ago. He came out to see them play. Uh, Geller was waiting out his residency period to join the union in New York and wasn't really working as a result. And and Desmond, now with a little money to his name, finally paid him back the seventy-five dollars that Geller bought his stolen horns for. It's kind of a nice end to that story, you know. Remember he he. Uh, Refused to pay him for for buying his horns back from the thief. Following this successful trip to the East Coast, the quartet returned to California, where they developed a large fan base both around the Bay Area and further south in Los Angeles. With steady gigs at the Surf Club and Zardes, the group would often stay in Los Angeles for several months at a time when they weren't engaged at the Blackhawk. Desmond took up residence in the cloakroom of a hotel that had gone out of business in Santa Monica for a while. He had the run of the place, so it was a weird but probably pretty comfortable place to live. I know I've always wanted a place with, you know, like a lot of space that I could live in and also have bands around without disturbing anyone. Interestingly, this hotel that Desmond was living in would later become the headquarters uh, for Friends of the Pod, Cyanon, I think it was uh, in the Joe Henderson episode that I that I mentioned them. Trust me, if you're looking for a totally wild story, dig into signon Those guys were batshit crazy, and loads of famous jazz musicians were involved. Uh, Paul Paul Desmond, however, was not one of them. Remember that they were like uh like kind of like similar to Alcoholics Anonymous, but like uh like a really abusive cult version where they would just like hurl insults at each other and. Uh, Like, I think they made each other like shave their heads and they had all these weird punishments. Anyway, look up, sign on. They're so fucking weird. So during these forays to Southern California, Desmond took up the only exercise he ever pursued in his lifetime, swimming. Well, most people wouldn't call it swimming, but it was Desmond's particular version of it anyway. He would lie on an air mattress and sort of breaststroke his way around the pool gently for hours. Years later, when the group's success meant he could afford to, Desmond would rent houses with pools on Caribbean islands and do the same weird air mattress float around again for hours. It seems kind of in keeping with his, you know, daydreamy streak that ran through his entire life. Also, Yola Brubeck says that Paul always made use of the air mattress's drink holder when he was doing his exercises. Dave Brubeck says that Desmond also swam in the ocean and played a bit of volleyball on the beach. He also tells the story of the only time he was able to convince Desmond to throw a football around with him on the beach. Brubeck intentionally threw the ball when a big wave was coming so that Desmond would get wiped out by the wave, which of course he did. When he came up, his glasses were missing and he was furious, saying that he knew Brubeck did it on purpose. Dave got a bunch of strangers, you know, together to look for his glasses and eventually they did find him actually, but Brubeck says he never admitted to Desmond that he did it on purpose because he was so mad. I like this story, not just because it's funny, but because it shows the closeness of the two playing like brothers on the beach. Their relationship was many things through the years, but this particular time in Santa Monica seems really lovely. In fact, Brubeck's son, Darius, says his first memories are of Desmond playing the bongos on the beach in Santa Monica, and that he always called him Uncle Paul. Darius says he literally thought his dad and Desmond were brothers as a child. In the first episode, I mentioned Desmond's affinity for gambling, and he tells a funny story of his lifelong love for slot machines that took place on a trip back to California from Akron, Ohio one winter. Shout out Akron, Ohio, where I'm from. Uh, Brubeck and Crotty had decided to fly home to see their families uh, sooner, leaving Desmond and Lloyd Davis to make the trek in uh, in Brubeck's trusty Kaiser. Before leaving for his flight, Brubeck told Desmond he'd be wise not to stop off in Reno on his way home, which, of course, the saxophonist did anyway. He says they drove all the way to Reno from Akron, more or less without stopping, and arrived in something of a state and began playing the slots. At 10 in the morning, Desmond describes himself as playing nine nine machines simultaneously like a joyful octopus when the casino cops asked him to step outside into the alley. After questioning him uh, for a while, they advised he hit the road and not look back, which he did, about $150 uh, richer from his winnings on the machines. When they got to a motel a safe distance away, Desmond called the credit manager at the casino, whom he'd gotten to know rather well over the years, and asked what had happened. Apparently, there was a group of transients that had taken up residence in the area and were making a living on the slots using Australian quarters which worked for some reason, and because of the exchange rate, uh, it it made the odds basically irrelevant. You know, they could just pump in as many Australian quarters as they want uh, because they were so much cheaper, I guess. Because he was winning so much and playing so many machines in such a state of dishevel, the casino cops had assumed Desmond was part of the group. It's kind of a funny, innocent story, but Brubeck adds a little coda onto it that Desmond would generally leave out. Back in Akron, Brubeck had noticed that his uh, his puncture proof tires were were worn out. And uh, since they're playing in Akron, Ohio, there was a Goodyear executive that happened to be in the club who, you know, liked the group and, and uh he was kind enough to give Brubeck a new set of like really expensive, you know, puncture proof tires for his car, you know, knowing that they're out driving a lot and we're driving out west. It's quite a nice gift, right? So, out of money and needing to gamble, Desmond sold the tires off at a garage and put really cheap ones back on, you know, claiming that he would come back for Brubeck's gifted tires later, which he obviously never did. In 1953, the Brubeck Quartet found a new audience that changed the way the group and jazz musicians at large would make their livings for years to come. Yola Bru- Brubeck wrote to over 100 colleges with reviews from the group's live shows and a tempting offer of a low fee and a profit split. This was particularly appealing to student organizations, which often had very low budgets. It was a slow start, but built steadily. And by the time the group was being professionally managed by Joe Glazer, they were working campuses steadily. The famous Jazz at Oberlin album was an early result of this system. The renowned acoustics of Finney Chapel uh, at Oberlin and a musically, musically educated audience made for a perfect setting for the concert, which was to be recorded. Brubeck had also made a very wise business decision about the rights to the concert. He agreed to give Oberlin the rights to broadcast the concert in exchange for ownership of the master tapes. These masters were then released by Fantasy, which became a great selling record for Brubeck and helped to establish a young audience that would stay with him for decades. The album is also credited with helping to establish jazz as a subject for serious academic study both at Oberlin and on campuses across the nation. Wendell Logan, chair of jazz studies at Oberlin, described it as, quote, a watershed event that signaled the change of performance space for jazz from the nightclub to the concert hall, unquote. Two interesting side notes from this concert. um, According to the liner notes from the fantasy release, drummer Lloyd Davis had a uh, 103 degree fever during the performance. And also Jim Hall, who was studying at the nearby Cleveland Institute of Music, was in attendance, uh, Hall and Desmond didn't actually meet that night, but within a few years they would make several notable recordings together. Desmond's playing on Jazz at Oberland is quite stunning. He shows off his full ability and, and more, and plays in a way that that maybe is not always associated with him in terms of speed and swing. Ted Joya has written extensively about the album, and I'd recommend seeking his words out for more of a description. Um, the interesting thing about Desmond's playing at this time is that while he was demonstrating real mastery for the first time, um, he wasn't at all satisfied with his playing. According to Brubeck, whenever they would pull into town somewhere, Desmond would go seek out a teacher that everyone was raving about in the area and take some lessons. He would come back from these lessons and, and he would have like changed his embouchure or, or some other aspect of his playing and and no longer be able to achieve his signature sound. Rubeck claims that he did this for about two years and and lost a lot of his early altissimo abilities due to these, you know, probably needless lessons, really. This kind of gets at something that I've always wondered about Paul Desmond. Was he just naturally able to make that sound his whole life, or was it something he worked really hard toward? In other words, was there something about his physiology and the way that he heard the instrument that led him to naturally play the way he did? Or did he seek that sound out with practice? I think the fact that he was seeking out teachers and experimenting with his embouchure and technique as an established player might suggest that he more or less was able to naturally make that sound and was maybe even actively trying to change it. I wonder what he was asking these teachers when he would come in for a lesson. In 1953, Dave Brubeck is on the top of the downbeat poll for jazz combo, and Paul Desmond is in third in the alto sax category. According to those rankings, only Charlie Parker and Lee Konitz are ahead of him. I I can just imagine these teachers who were probably, you know, like great players and and great educators getting a call from this rising international star and being like, yeah, I I know who you are. Like, um, what can I do for you? (laughs) You know? Brubeck also describes a story where Desmond was coming up the stairs in their house and gleefully told him that he'd smashed his favorite mouthpiece and buried it in a hole in the floor of their cellar. His explanation doesn't make any sense to me, but he said, quote, I know that I've got to play other mouthpieces and whenever I try another mouthpiece, I know I'm not sounding as good as on this old one. So this way I can never go back to it, unquote. I, I, I don't get it at all. Like. Why smash the mouthpiece you sound best on? (laughs) Again, I think it might suggest that he just sort of naturally sounded the way that he did and wanted to change it. What a problem to have, you know. (laughs) During this time in the early half of the 1950s, Desmond took a little departure from the group for unknown reasons. The usually unambitious alto player seemed to think that there were some things he needed to do as a leader or something, and so he convinced Brubeck that the quartet should have a vacation for a few weeks. It's kind of an odd episode since the group was really starting to take off at the time, and, and nothing really came from the short hiatus. It's a little difficult to figure out what Desmond was thinking, but I think Brubeck's description of it might be telling. Rubeck said that he finally relented to Desmond's idea for a few weeks vacation, thinking that if his star Sidemen left, it, it, it wouldn't really be the end of anything. He had left before and they were basically just playing the trio book with an additional soloist anyway. All standards, really. It's pure speculation on my part, but I wonder if Desmond had felt like something of an outsider in his own group for the first few years of, of, of real success. After all, he had worked his whole Operation Paradise thing to force his way in. And also, it it was always the Dave Brubeck Quartet, which was and still is, frankly, a bit unusual for the leader not to be the horn player in a quartet setting. Anyway, Brubeck said that he ran into Paul's father on the street one day and Emil told him in no uncertain terms that Desmond needed him and needed to be back in the group. So luckily, uh, this all just sort of blew over and Desmond went back with the old group after a few weeks and and all was fine. Just nothing really came of it. Um, the really weird thing is that for all of their success and all of their years together, Desmond never signed a contract with Brubeck. Their lawyers would write them up and Brubeck would sign it and send it over. But Paul would just read it and say, it's fine. I trust you and never sign his. It's kind of an interesting arrangement when you think about the amount of like money that was on the line with their performing schedules and recording deals and, and like the tax implications and all that stuff. Not having an official contract could have potentially made it very easy for either party to screw each other over. But I think their their trust speaks to both the the deep friendship between Brubeck and Desmond and a recognition of the importance of the other in creating the group's unique sound. In 1954, the legendary Columbia Records producer George Avakian was on his annual summer holiday in San Francisco with his wife when he heard that Dave Brubeck's deal with Fantasy Records was nearly finished. Avakian and his wife frequently vacationed in San Francisco so that Avakian's wife, the violinist Anaheed Ayman, I'm probably saying that wrong. No idea how to pronounce it. Sorry. Anyway, they were there so that she could rehearse and perform with her sister, who was a pianist who lived in the area. Because of these regular visits to the West Coast, Avakian had seen the Brubeck group at various stages of its evolution on these trips. And, and so Avakian set up a meeting and offered Brubeck a contract, as well as asked what size advance Brubeck was expecting. Brubeck said $6,000 would pay off his mortgage, and Avakian agreed, saying that he hoped the label would make the money back in a reasonable amount of time. The first Dave Brubeck Quartet record on Columbia, which was actually a compilation of recordings from their college tours titled Jazz Goes to College, paid off the advance in only 24 days. I know we're getting a bit into the weeds and and this is a podcast about Paul Desmond, not Dave Brubeck, but the two are really inextricably linked at this point in the story. And, you know, what happened to Brubeck happened to Desmond. I wonder if Evakian knew that Brubeck was sitting on all these great tapes from their university campus tours, or if the ability to put out a record that was both commercially successful and critically acclaimed with zero recording cost was like a signing bonus for Columbia. There's no way to know, really. Uh, What is for sure was that signing Brubeck was a very shrewd move by Avakian. He timed the release with an interview for Time magazine as well, which put Brubeck on its cover. At that time, he was only the second jazz musician to be featured there. The first being Louis Armstrong. Incidentally, when the issue came out, the Brubeck Quartet was on a tour with Duke Ellington, Jerry Mulligan and Stan Getz. Ellington knocked on Brubeck's hotel room at six in the morning with a copy of the magazine to uh, congratulate him with the news. Brubeck said that he knew Time Magazine was working on cover stories about both him and Ellington and was praying that Ellington's issue would come out first. But alas, Brubeck's was first and Ellington's cover wouldn't be for another couple of years until after his triumphant uh, Newport concert, you know, his kind of comeback thing. Avakian uh, says he still has the tape reel that the Time interview was recorded on and and says it features Brubeck saying that he chose to sign with Columbia because he admired Avakian's sister-in-law's piano playing, uh, even though they offered the lowest amount of money out of all the labels that were courting him. Anyway, that's enough business stuff and enough Brubeck-centered narrative. How about a funny anecdote about Desmond to clear the palate, shall we say? Desmond had uh, a well-known and completely unrequited infatuation with Audrey Hepburn for years. While the Brubeck Quartet was doing a run of performances at Basin Street, Audrey Hepburn was performing as an underwater nymph in the play Ondine, uh, basically around the corner at the 48, uh, sorry, 46th Street Theater. Desmond would uh, would be like nervously looking at his watch all night and he knew what time Hepburn would come out of the theater to get into her limo. So Brubeck says that he knew Desmond would want to go out and try to catch a glimpse of her. So when when he started getting antsy, Brubeck would call for a break and and, you know, Desmond would just walk off the stage and straight out to the street to try to spot her coming out of the theater the tune Audrey from the 1955 album Brubeck Time became one of Desmond's best-known recorded works and was naturally named for Audrey Hepburn. Uh, Sadly, the two never met. Kind of a funny story, right? Neat. Well, in a very Desmond-like twist, there's more. So Desmond died some two and a half decades after these nightly missions to the curb, assuming that Hepburn was completely unaware of him and, and his crush on her. In 1993, the UN honored Hepburn for her charity work, and her husband requested that Brubeck play Audrey at the ceremony because, according to him, she listened to it every night before she went to bed and through earphones when walking in the garden. She also referred to it as her tune in a handwritten note to the author Peter Levinson uh, the year before. I guess it goes to show that, that you never know who might be listening. Just as the Brubeck Time cover story came out, propelling the group to exponentially greater success, Desmond recorded his first side as a leader. The Time article made clear how integral Desmond was to the Brubeck operation, and now, with his own release in the works, he would soon be more than just a featured sideman. In October of 1954, Desmond released a quintet album with Dick Collins on trumpet, Dave Van Crete on tenor, Bob uh, Bob Bates on bass, and Joe Dodge on drums. It was followed up the next month with a quartet album featuring Barney Kessel on guitar and six singers known as the Bill Bates Singers. Bill Bates was another brother of Norman and Bob Bates, and he did the vocal arranging for Desmond's album. Early in 1956, Desmond released another quartet album, this time featuring Don Elliott on trumpet. And you might be noticing a theme here in that there are no piano players anywhere on these albums. This was a conscious decision and and an agreement that Desmond had made with Brubeck. When recording on his own, Desmond would not use piano in order to eliminate any confusion with the uh, Brubeck quartet. I can't believe I didn't realize that that this was what he was doing until, uh, you know, I was putting this episode together. I've, I've always loved the records that he put out with Jim Hall and just assumed that he liked that combination of sounds, which of course he must have. But thinking about it now, it seems really obvious that simply changing the instrumentation was such an effective way to differentiate his own releases from those of the Brubeck quartets. I think it's also important to recognize that Jerry Mulligan's Piano Less Quartet was active in the early 50s, and um, Desmond was known to to really admire Jerry's playing in in those groups. Desmond signed to Fantasy for his releases as a leader, much to the chagrin of George Avakian and Columbia Records. In a letter to Desmond, Avakian told him that he would have gladly given him his own deal with Columbia if he had wanted and also admonished that perhaps this wasn't the best moment for Desmond or for Brubeck for the saxophonist to step out on his own. It's easy to imagine that that Desmond just wanted to sign with Fantasy because he, you know he was close with Mac's wife and and he felt comfortable there. The label was notorious for putting puns and little jokes in their liner notes, like calling uh, Joe Dodge Joe Chevrolet, which is like exactly Desmond's kind of humor, you know. Fantasy Records was a bit like a weird family. They had this apartment just south of Golden Gate Park that many of the various oddballs associated with the label lived in. Uh, first amongst them, Desmond. Uh, Lenny, Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul were around frequently, and, and they would kind of like go out to dinner in these big parties of like weird men associated with Fantasy Records. Like, it sounds pretty cool, really. Sounds like a great atmosphere. And I can also imagine him wanting to be on a different label entirely from his work with the Brubeck Quartet, like just, you know, just to make it a different thing that that makes sense to me. The Dave Brubeck Quartet's third album for Columbia, Jazz, Red Hot and Cool, demonstrates the the massive commercial commercial reach of the group at the time. It's essentially a live album cobbled together from various club dates, but the release was used as part of a marketing ploy by the uh, Helena Rubinstein Cosmetics company. The cover features a very stylish Susie Parker leaning over Brubeck's piano while Desmond looks on from the other side. It was shot by legendary photographer Richard Avenden at uh, Hungry Eye, uh, which is a club in San Francisco. Uh, along with the release, The Makeup Company took out full-page magazine ads that offered a free 6-inch 78 RPM from uh, Columbia Records that featured uh, the hot jazz of Eddie Condon and Turk Murphy on the hot side and uh, Dave Brubeck and Pete Rugolo on the cool side. The subtext of this album release slash ad campaign is, you know, if you wear our lipstick, you'll be a real gone chick and cats like Desmond and Brubeck will all, will be all over you, daddy-o. <laughs> you know, it, it's a bit silly, but it does point to the profile that, uh, that Desmond and Brubeck had and the role that they played in the, the collective imagination of the 1950s. I think it's important to note also that these sort of ad campaigns were not offered to black players at the time. It was quite common during the early 50s for the Brubeck Quartet to play opposite Charlie Parker at Birdland. Same audience, same music, the players digging each other, same club. However, while it might have been an effective sales ploy to make women think a product would help them appeal to the likes of Brubeck and Desmond, it was not seen as acceptable by large portions of mainstream America to have, say, Charlie Parker and Bud Powell drooling over a woman in exactly the same circumstances. I bring this up for two reasons. Um, first, it's true, and it's important that we recognize that in a musical art form largely created by African Americans, whites often received better treatment and better financial deals. And secondly. I bring it up because I think that these kinds of dichotomies led to a lot of the animosity that was occasionally found in the, you know, quote unquote, East Coast, West Coast divide. I personally believe that that construct was largely created by uh, record labels, marketing people, the jazz press, and others, not the musicians themselves. The racial divides put on the players by society at large were far more significant far more significant than any stylistic divides created by the musicians themselves, in my opinion. In 1957, Joe Dodge left the Brubeck Quartet, leaving the remaining three members to find a new drummer. Desmond had seen Joe Morello playing with Marion McPartland's group and was impressed with the subtlety that he played with and, and the intensity of his swing at low volumes, particularly when using brushes. So he recommended Morello to Brubeck, who quickly agreed after hearing him play. Morello came in and instantly impro- impressed Brubeck, but uh, not for his subtlety, more for his soloing and his technical prowess. Morello told Brubeck that he wanted he wanted to improve his playing and and to be a featured member, not simply keep time in the background for the soloists, which is really what uh, what Desmond wanted, and. Brubeck agreed and and wanted to feature him, which incensed Desmond, who told Brubeck that it was either Morello or him. It's funny now, since we know how close Desmond and Morello would become and, and how instrumental Morello was in animating Desmond's best-known composition, but I can see how he would have been annoyed with the situation. Here, he'd found this drummer that that plays with all this great sensitivity and lightness and And he gets him in the band and and Brubeck's got him like dropping bombs and playing solos. And uh. At first, Desmond and Bates refused to play with him at a recording session and they threatened not to show up uh, for the evening dates. But uh, they relented and eventually everything did smooth over, no doubt a result of Morello's obvious talent, you know, winning them over. The following year, 1958, saw the last personnel change that would create the classic quartet. The prospect of a world tour organized by the State Department was too much for Norman Bates, who was looking to leave the road life behind. Eugene Wright came in as a recommendation from Morello and had a rather dramatic start. Performing at East Carolina College, the group was told that they would have to go on as a trio without Wright because of segregation. Brubeck refused, and eventually approval came in from the, from the governor. Uh, Largely due to the screaming and stomping demand from the students in the audience, the band came out swinging harder than ever before, no doubt incensed by the attempt to keep its newest member from the stage. Through this early test of character, the classic Brubeck quartet was formed. Now they were truly ready for the big time. I think that's where we'll leave the story for part two. Um, Please like and subscribe to the Saxophone History Podcast and uh, stay tuned for episode three on Paul Desmond, which will be out soon. Uh, I'm going to do everything in my power to uh, make sure there isn't a huge gap like there was before this episode. Um, Today, instead of giving some listening recommendations like I usually do at the end of each episode, I thought I'd give a couple of um, funny little Paul Desmond stories that I had not heard before. You know, there's like kind of that canon of stories that everyone knows about him, like the usual ones of him wanting to sound like a dry martini and and the the one about, I think there's fantastic orgies going on all over town, but people don't invite me because they think I'm reading the encyclopedia or whatever. Like those are a bit beaten to death, but uh, so here are three little gems that were new to me anyway. Desmond went out on a few dates with a woman named Joe Bald Joan Baldino when the Brubeck group was first starting out. And one night they're like out on a date and he stood up from the table and a candle fell in his lap, getting candle wax everywhere. This was like really embarrassing for Paul, and he invented the term waxy following the incident to describe an unpleasant or embarrassing situation. Apparently he thought this would like really catch on, but it, it didn't. Um, I guess it's a rare example of his literary wit, not landing, but occasionally when you do find like, uh, quotes from him, you'll hear him say waxy. So whenever you hear that, you'll know that, uh, he got that from standing up and knocking over a candle into his lap. Another one, um, Desmond owned a Baldwin baby grand piano which he loaned to Bradley Cunningham, the owner of Bradley's Piano Bar in the village, um, with the agreement that Cunningham would take responsibility for making the arrangement to return it you know, back to Desmond's Upper West Side apartment. This was much later in his life, which is, you know, it's not exactly an easy test to move a, a baby grand piano around Manhattan, right? Uh, so the, the agreement was basically like, you can use my piano for your bar, but when you're done with it, you have to bring it back. So When, uh, so he did that, he, he brought the piano back to Desmond's apartment, but when Desmond died, he left the piano to Cunningham at his will. So he had to arrange to move it back to his, you know, to his bar or whatever. (laughs) Again, it was just kind of like a little joke. And finally, the last one, um, parking in San Francisco's Tenderloin district has always been notoriously difficult. Dave Brubeck describes how he would leave for gigs at the Blackhawk super early, only to make the stage just in time because it was so hard to find a spot. Desmond would come at the very last minute every night with no stress, which just like confounded Brubeck. Like, how was he able to always find a parking spot so reliably that he could leave it to the last minute? So one day he asked Desmond, like, how, how does he manage to do this to find parking so reliably near the club? So Desmond took him out and showed him where he had been parking every night, and it was a, a space marked SFPD, which he claimed meant safe for Paul Desmond. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. Um, thanks again for listening, and please like and subscribe, and and tell your friends and, and all that. Uh, all the sources and any other relevant bits will be will be available on my website. That's Andrew D Meyer M E Y E R com. And please get in touch if you have any comments or anything. A few listeners have emailed and we've started some nice little conversations. So it'd be great to hear from you as well. And thanks very much. And we'll see you next time for the conclusion of the Paul Desmond story on the Saxophone History Podcast.